Chapter 3 of The Spirit of the Age or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 3 Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The present is an age of talkers and not of doers and the reason is that the world is growing old. We are so far advanced in the arts and sciences that we live in retrospect and dote on past achievements. The accumulation of knowledge has been so great that we are lost in wonder at the height it has reached instead of attempting to climb or add to it, while the variety of objects distracts and dazzles the looker-on. What niche remains unoccupied? What path untried? What is the use of doing anything unless we could do better than all those who have gone before us? What hope is there of this? We are like those who have been to see some noble monument of art, who are content to admire without thinking of rivaling it, or like guests after a feast who praise the hospitality of the donor and thank the bounteous pen, perhaps carrying away some trifling fragments. Or like the spectators of a mighty battle, who still hear its sound afar off, and the clashing of armor and the neighing of the war-horse and the shout of victory is in their ears, like the rushing of innumerable waters. Mr. Coleridge has a mind reflecting ages past. His voice is like the echo of the congregated roar of the dark rearward and abyss of thought. He who has seen a mouldering tower by the side of a crystal lake, hid by the mist but glittering in the wave below, may conceive the dim, gleaming, uncertain intelligence of his eye. He who has marked the evening clouds uprolled a world of vapors, has seen the picture of his mind, unearthly, unsubstantial, with gorgeous tints and ever-varying forms. That which was now a horse, even with a thought, the rack dislimbs, and makes it indistinct as water is in water. Our author's mind is, as he himself might express it, tangential. There is no subject on which he has not touched none on which he has rested. With an understanding, fertile, subtle, expansive, quick, forgetive, apprehensive, beyond all living precedent, few traces of it will perhaps remain. He lends himself to all impressions alike. He gives up his mind and liberty of thought to none. He is a general lover of art and science, and wedded to no one in particular. He pursues knowledge as a mistress, with outstretched hands and winged speed, but as he is about to embrace her, his Daphne turns, alas, not to a laurel. Hardly a speculation has been left on record from the earliest time, but it is loosely folded up in Mr. Coldridge's memory, like a rich but somewhat tattered piece of tapestry. We might add, with more seeming than real extravagance, that scarce a thought can pass through the mind of man, but its sound has at some time or other passed over his head with rustling pinions. 
on whatever question or author you speak, he is prepared to take up the theme with advantage, from Peter Abelard down to Thomas More, from the subtlest metaphysics to the politics of the courier. There is no man of genius in whose praise he descants, but the critic seems to stand above the author, and what in him is weak to strengthen, what is low to raise and support. Nor is there any work of genius that does not come out of his hands like an illuminated missile, sparkling even in its defects. If Mr. Coleridge had not been the most impressive talker of his age, he would probably have been the finest writer. But he lays down his pen to make sure of an auditor, and mortgages the admiration of posterity for the stare of an idler. If he had not been a poet, he would have been a powerful logician. If he had not dipped his wing in the Unitarian controversy, he might have soared to the very summit of fancy. But in writing verse, he is trying to subject the muse to transcendental theories. In his abstract reasoning, he misses his way by strewing it with flowers. All that he has done of moment, he had done twenty years ago. Since then, he may be said to have lived on the sound of his own voice. Mr. Coleridge is too rich in intellectual wealth to need to task himself to any drudgery. He has only to draw the sliders of his imagination, and a thousand subjects expand before him, startling him with their brilliancy or losing themselves in endless obscurity and by the force of blear illusion they draw him on to his confusion. What is the little he could add to the stock, compared with the countless stores that lie about him, that he should stoop to pick up a name or to polish an idle fancy? He walks abroad in the majesty of a universal understanding, eyeing the rich strand or golden sky above him, and goes sounding on his way in eloquent accents, uncompelled, and free. Persons of the greatest capacity are often those who for this reason do the least. For surveying themselves from the highest point of view, amidst the infinite variety of the universe, their own share in it seems trifling and scarce worth a thought, and they prefer the contemplation of all that is, or has been, or can be, to the making a coil about doing what, when done, is no better than vanity. It is hard to concentrate all our attention and efforts on one pursuit except from ignorance of others, and without this concentration of our faculties no great progress can be made in any one thing. It is not merely that the mind is not capable of the effort. It does not think the effort worth making. Action is one but thought is manifold. He whose restless eye glances through the wide compass of nature and art will not consent to have his own nothings monstered, but he must do this before he can give his whole soul to them. The mind, after letting contemplation have its fill, or sailing with supreme dominion through the azure deep of air, sinks down on the ground breathless, exhausted, powerless, inactive, or, if it must have some vent to its feelings, seeks the most easy and obvious, 
is soothed by friendly flattery, lulled by the murmur of immediate applause, thinks as it were aloud and babbles in its dreams. A scholar, so to speak, is a more disinterested and abstracted character than a mere author. The first looks at the numberless volumes of a library and says, all these are mine. The other points to a single volume, perhaps it may be an immortal one, and says, my name is written on the back of it. This is a puny and groveling ambition, beneath the lofty amplitude of Mr. Coleridge's mind. No, he revolves in his wayward soul, or utters to the passing wind, or discourses to his own shadow, things mightier and more various. Let us draw the curtain and unlock the shrine. Learning rocked him in his cradle, and, while yet a child, he lisped in numbers, for the numbers came. At sixteen he wrote his ode on Chatterton, and he still reverts to that period with delight, not so much as it relates to himself, for that string of his own early promise of fame rather jars than otherwise, but as exemplifying the youth of a poet. Mr. Coleridge talks of himself without being an egotist, for in him the individual is always merged in the abstract and general. He distinguished himself at school at the university by his knowledge of the classics, and gained several prizes for Greek epigrams. How many men are there, great scholars, celebrated names in literature, who, having done the same thing in their youth, have no other idea all the rest of their lives but of this achievement, of a fellowship and dinner, and who, installed in academic honors, would look down on our author as a mere strolling bard. At Christ's hospital, where he was brought up, he was the idol of those among his schoolfellows who mingled with their bookish studies the music of thought and of humanity, and he was usually attended round the cloisters by a group of these, inspiring and inspired, whose hearts even then burnt within them as he talked, and where the sounds yet linger to mock Eliah on his way, still turning pensive to the past. One of the finest and rarest parts of Mr. Coleridge's conversation is when he expatiates on the Greek tragedians, not that he is not well acquainted when he pleases with the epic poets or philosophers or orators or historians of antiquity, on the subtle reasonings and melting pathos of Euripides, on the harmonious gracefulness of Sophocles turning his love-labored song like sweetest warblings from a sacred grove, on the high-wrought trumpet-tongued eloquence of Aeschylus, whose Prometheus, above all, is like an ode to fate and a pleading with providence, his thoughts being let loose as his body is chained on his solitary rock, and his afflicted will, the emblem of mortality, struggling in vain with ruthless destiny. As the impassioned critic speaks and rises in his theme, you would think you heard the voice of the man hated by the gods, contending with the wild winds as they roar, and his eye glitters with the spirit of antiquity. Next he was engaged with Hartley's Tribes of Mind, ethereal braid, thought woven, 
and he busied himself for a year or two with vibrations and vibrationcles and the great law of association that binds all things in its mystic chain, and the doctrine of necessity, the mild teacher of charity, and the millennium anticipative of a life to come. And he plunged deep into the controversy on matter and spirit, and as an escape from Dr. Priestley's materialism, where he felt himself imprisoned by the logician's spell, like Ariel in the cloven pine tree, he became suddenly enamored of Bishop Berkeley's fairy world, and used in all companies to build the universe like a brave poetical fiction of fine words. And he was deep-read in Malbranche and in Cudworth's intellectual system, a huge pile of learning, unwieldy, enormous and in Lord Brooke's hieroglyphic theories, and in Bishop Butler's sermons, and in Duchess of Newcastle's fantastic folios, and in Clark and South and Tillotson, and all the fine thinkers and masculine reasoners of that age. And Leibniz's pre-established harmony reared its arch above his head, like the rainbow in the cloud covenanting with the hopes of men. And then he felt plump, ten thousand fathoms down, but his wings saved him harmless, into the hortus of descent, where he pared religion down to the standard of reason, and stripped faith of mystery, and preached Christ crucified and the unity of the Godhead, and so dwelt for a while in the spirit with John Hus and Jerome of Prague, and Socinus and old John Ziska, and ran through Neil's history of the Puritans, and Calamy's nonconformists' memorial, having like thoughts and passions with them. But then Spinoza became his god, and he took up the vast chain of being in his hand, and the round world became the center and the soul of all things in some shadowy sense, forlorn of meaning, and around him he beheld the living traces and the sky-pointing proportions of the mighty pan, but poetry redeemed him from this spectral philosophy, and he bathed his heart in beauty, and gazed at the golden light of heaven, and drank of the spirit of the universe, and wandered at eve by fairy stream or fountain, when he saw naught but beauty, when he heard the voice of that almighty one in every breeze that blew or wave that murmured and wedded with truth in Plato's shade, and in the writings of Proclus and Plotinus saw the ideas of things in the eternal mind, and unfolded all mysteries with the schoolmen, and fathomed the depths of Don Scotus and Thomas Aquinas, and entered the third heaven with Jacob Behmen, and walked hand in hand with Swedenborgs through pavilions of the New Jerusalem, and sung his faith in the promise and in the word of his religious musings, and lowering himself from that dizzy height, poised himself on Milton's wings, and spread out his thoughts in charity with the glad prose of Jeremy Taylor, and wept over Bowes's sonnets, and studied Cooper's blank verse, and betook himself to Thompson's Castle of Indolence, and sported with the wits of Charles II's days and of Queen Anne, and relished swift style, and that of the John Bull, Arbuthnot's, we mean, not Mr. Croker's, 
and dallied with the British essayists and novelists, and knew all qualities of more modern writers with a learned spirit, Johnson and Goldsmith, and Junius and Burke and Godwin, and the sorrows of Werther and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Voltaire and Marivaux and Crébillon, and thousands more. Now left with Rabelais in his easy chair, or pointed to Hogarth, or afterwards dwelt on Claude's classic scenes, or spoke with rapture of Raphael, and compared the women at Rome to figures that had walked out of his pictures, or visited the oratory of Pisa, and described the works of Giotto and Ghirlandaio and Masaccio, and gave the moral of the picture of the triumph of death, where the beggars and the wretched invoke his dreadful dart, but the rich and mighty of the earth quail and shrink before it. And in that land of siren sights and sounds saw a dance of peasant girls, and was charmed with lutes and gondolas, or wandered into Germany and lost himself in the labyrinth of the heart's forest and of the Kantian philosophy, and amongst the cabalistic names of Fichte and Schelling and Lessing and God knows who, this was long after, but all the former while he had nerved his heart and filled his eyes with tears as he hailed the rising orb of liberty, since quenched in darkness and in blood, and has kindled his affection at the blaze of the French Revolution, and sang for joy when the towers of the Bastille and the proud places of the insolent and the oppressor fell, and would have floated his bark, freighted with fondest fancies, across the Atlantic wave with Southey and others to seek the peace and freedom, in Philharmonia's undivided dale. Alas, frailty, thy name is genius. What is become of all this mighty heap of hope, of thought, of learning, and humanity? It has ended in swallowing doses of oblivion, and in writing paragraphs in the courier. Such and so little is the mind of man. Footnote. Mr. Coleridge named his eldest son, the writer of some beautiful sonnets, after Hartley, and the second after Berkeley. The third was called Derwent, after the river of that name. Nothing can be more characteristic of his mind than this circumstance. All his ideas, indeed, are like a river, flowing on forever, and still murmuring as it flows, discharging its waters, and still replenished. And so by many winding nooks it strays, with willing sport to the wild ocean. And a footnote. It was not to be supposed that Mr. Coleridge could keep on at the rate he set off. He could not realize all he knew or thought, and less could not fix his desultory ambition. Other stimulants supplied the place, and kept up the intoxicating dream, the fever and the madness of his early impressions. Liberty, the philosopher's and the poet's bride, had fallen a victim, meanwhile, to the murderous practices of the hag legitimacy. Proscribed by court hirelings too romantic for the herd of vulgar politicians, our enthusiasts stood at bay, and at last turned on the pivot of a subtle casuistry to the unclean side. But his discursive reason would not let him trammel himself into a poet laureate or stamp distributor, 
and he stopped ere he had quite passed that well-known born from whence no traveller returns and so has sunk into torpid uneasy repose tantalized by useless resources haunted by vain imaginings his lips idly moving but his heart forever still or as the shattered chords vibrate of themselves making melancholy music to the ear of memory such is the fate of genius in an age when in the unequal contest with sovereign wrong every man is ground to powder who is not either a born slave or who does not willingly and at once offer up the yearnings of humanity and the dictates of reason as a welcome sacrifice to besotted prejudice and loathsome power of all mr coleridge's productions the ancient mariner is the only one that we could with confidence put into any person's hands on whom we wished to impress a favorable idea of his extraordinary powers let whatever other objections be made to it it is unquestionably a work of genius of wild irregular overwhelming imagination and has that rich varied movement in the verse which gives a distant idea of the lofty or changeful tones of mr coleridge's voice in the christabel there is one splendid passage on divided friendship the translation of schiller's wallenstein is also a masterly production in its kind faithful and spirited among his smaller pieces there are occasional bursts of pathos and fancy equal to what we might expect from him but these form the exception and not the rule such for instance is his affecting sonnet to the author of the robbers schiller that hour i would have wished to die if through the shuddering midnight i had sent from the dark dungeon of the tower time rent that fearful voice a famished father's cry that in no after-moment aught less vast might stamp me mortal a triumphant shout black horror screamed and all her goblin rout from the more withering scene diminished past ah bar tremendous in sublimity could i behold thee in thy loftier mood wandering at eve with finely frenzied eye beneath some vast old tempest-swinging wood awhile with mute awe-gazing i would brood then weep aloud in a wild ecstasy his tragedy entitled remorse is full of beautiful and striking passages but it does not place the author in the first rank of dramatic writers but if mr coleridge's works do not place him in that rank they injure instead of conveying a just idea of the man for he himself is certainly in the first class of general intellect if our author's poetry is inferior to his conversation his prose is utterly abortive hardly a gleam is to be found in it of the brilliancy and richness of those stores of thought and language that he pours out incessantly when they are lost like drops of water in the ground the principal work in which he has attempted to embody his general views of things is the friend 
of which, though it contains some noble passages and fine trains of thought, prolixity and obscurity are the most frequent characteristics. No two persons can be conceived more opposite in character or genius than the subject of the present and of the preceding sketch. Mr. Godwin, with less natural capacity and with fewer acquired advantages, by concentrating his mind on some given object and doing what he had to do with all his might, has accomplished much and will leave more than one monument of a powerful intellect behind him. Mr. Coleridge, by dissipating his, and by dallying with every subject by turns, has done little or nothing to justify to the world or to posterity the high opinion which all who have ever heard him converse or known him intimately with one accord entertain of him. Mr. Godwin's faculties have kept house and plied their task in the workshop of the brain, diligently and effectually. Mr. Coleridge's have gossiped away their time and gathered about from house to house as if life's business were to melt the hours in listless talk. Mr. Godwin is intent on a subject only as it concerns himself and his reputation. He works it out as a matter of duty and discards from his mind whatever does not forward his main object as impertinent and vain. Mr. Coleridge, on the other hand, delights in nothing but episodes and digressions, neglects whatever he undertakes to perform, and can act only on spontaneous impulses without object or method. He cannot be constrained by mastery. While he should be occupied with a given pursuit, he is thinking of a thousand other things. A thousand tastes, a thousand objects tempt him and distract his mind, which keeps open house and entertains all comers. And after being fatigued and amused with morning calls from idle visitors, finds the day consumed and its business unconcluded. Mr. Godwin, on the contrary, is somewhat exclusive and unsocial in his habits of mind entertains no company but what he gives his whole time and attention to, and wisely writes over the doors of his understanding, his fancy, and his senses, no admittance except on business. He has none of the fastidious refinement and fine delicacy which might lead him to balance between the endless variety of modern attainments. He does not throw away his life, nor a single half-hour of it, in adjusting the claims of different accomplishments, and in choosing between them and making himself master of them all. He sets about his task, whatever it may be, and goes through it with spirit and fortitude. He has the happiness to think an author the greatest character in the world, and himself the greatest author in it. Mr. Coleridge, in writing a harmonious stanza, would stop to consider whether there was not more grace and beauty in a pas de trois, and would not proceed till he had resolved this question by a chain of metaphysical reasoning without end. Not so, Mr. Godwin. That is best to him which he can do best. He does not waste himself in vain aspirations and effeminate sympathies. He is blind, deaf, insensible to all but the rump of fame plays, operas, painting, music, 
ballrooms, wealth, fashion, titles, lords, ladies, touch him not. All these are no more to him than to the magician in his cell, and he writes on to the end of the chapter through good report and evil report. Bingo in eternitatem is his motto. He neither envies nor admires what others are, but is contented to be what he is and strives to do the utmost he can. Mr. Coleridge has flirted with the muses as with a set of mistresses. Mr. Godwin has been married twice, to reason and to fancy, and has to boast no short-lived progeny by each. So to speak, he has valves belonging to his mind to regulate the quantity of gas admitted into it, so that, like the bare, unsightly, but well-compacted steam vessel, it cuts its liquid way and arrives at its promised end. While Mr. Coleridge's bark, taught with the little nautilus to sail, the sport of every breath, dancing to every wave, youth at its prow, and pleasure at its helm, flutters its gaudy pennants in the air, glitters in the sun, but we wait in vain to hear of its arrival in the destined harbor. Mr. Godwin, with less variety and vividness, with less subtlety and susceptibility, both of thought and feeling, has had firmer nerves, a more determined purpose, a more comprehensive grasp of his subject, and the results are as we find them. Each has met with his reward, for justice has, after all, been done to the pretensions of each. And we must, in all cases, use means to ends. End of chapter 3